Good to be here. Appreciate the presence of everyone. We are going to be starting this study of Romans tonight. We're going to try to cover the first 17 verses, and we could spend much more time than what I'm going to spend on this. We could spend an incredible amount of time. It's such a rich text, such a beautiful letter that he's written. It's highly regarded in literary circles and in biblical circles. A few of the comments, and, and of course these are not inspired in any way, but a couple of notable uh, names you might recognize had this to say about Romans. J.W. McGarvey was a Church of Christ preacher in the 19th century, and he said the epistle was written when Paul was in, in the prime and vigor of his manhood and when his activities in the ministry were most fully exercised, and when the new religion of Christ was assuming its supremacy over all known forms of worship. No wonder, therefore, that Paul produced on this occasion a letter which Coleridge has rightly described as the most profound work in existence. Coleridge, I had to look him up. I didn't know who that was, but he, apparently he was a 17th century English poet. I don't know that McGarvey liked him in any way, except he appreciated the one comment he had to say about Romans. Martin Luther certainly wasn't writing anything inspired, but he had this to say, this letter is the profound part of the New Testament and the purest gospel, which surely deserves the honor that a Christian man should not merely know it off by heart, word for word, but that he should be occupied with it daily as the bread of the soul, for it can never be read too often and too well. And the more it is used, the more delicious it becomes and the better it tastes. This is a highly regarded piece of literature in literary circles and in biblical circles. We just have to be real careful because we don't get to elevate one book above the rest or one writer above the rest. We don't get to do that. Uh, very familiar passage of scripture, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is proper for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So this God breed, every scripture that we have in the pages of the Bible is breathed by the mouth of God and is profitable for us, is beneficial for us, that way we may be complete thoroughly furnished into all good works. A few basic facts about Romans. It was written in approximately 58 AD, written uh, to the church at Rome, of course. And while Paul was in Corinth, most scholars agree with that, it was sent to inform them that, that he wanted to visit them and he expected that to occur quickly. The, uh, the irony of the situation, he, had, he was promised a, a while later by Christ in a vision that he would be able to go to, to Rome and preach. But then it was four years after that before he actually went. And when he went to preach the gospel in Rome, he went in chains. So it wasn't exactly in the time frame that he thought, and it wasn't exactly in the manner he would have anticipated. But he was informing them of his desire and supposed uh, soon to occur visit but Paul provides a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ and so brilliantly done that there can be no debate a judicial argument made that Franklin would understand this a lot better than we could imagine but there could be no debate there's no counter argument he dispels every 
objection to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he also provides a defense in the same way of the righteousness of God, in particular the righteous judgment of God, and he makes that clear early on, and it's going to be a constant theme of Romans. So, Romans 1, verse 1. We're going to spend a little time on Romans, the first chapter, the first verse. You wouldn't think in the salutation that there would be that much here, but I didn't think we could do justice to this without dwelling on it a little bit. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. So it was customary at that time in a lot of the letters, in papyrus or in animal skins, that they were in scrolls. And when you unroll the scroll, you didn't have to, in a, in a scroll this big around, the book of Romans 16 chapters had to be huge. You identify yourself at the top. So you don't have to have someone scroll all the way to the bottom to find out who wrote it. So it was customary to do that, and he did that here. So Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Out of all the titles that we would attribute to Paul, he just calls himself, he titled himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He didn't refer to himself as the great apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, which he was. He didn't identify himself as a Pharisee's Pharisee and possibly even a member of the Sanhedrin. He didn't identify himself as a, as a Jew's Jew, as, as a, a man of, of power and wealth at one time anyway, at least some measure of that. He didn't identify him in any of, even after his conversion. He didn't try to make himself seem like all that. A servant of Jesus Christ. And we all know that servant means bondservant, means slave. So he's stating his subjection to Christ. Total subjection early on. Servant of Jesus Christ. But as his official emissary, Paul was entitled to be heard. You think about an emissary of a very rich and powerful man sent to a to a foreign city to deliver a message. If he is recognized as the servant, as the slave, as the emissary of that rich and powerful individual, that slave is due a measure of respect that you would normally extend to that rich and powerful person. And failure to do that, mistreatment of that official servant sent to this location, mistreatment of that person is legally judged to be mistreatment of the rich and powerful person who sent him. So Paul also makes reference to that when he says, a servant of Jesus Christ. Bond slave, bond servant or slave. So he's stating his complete subjection to Christ. Very humble, a servant of Jesus Christ. But he, next he combines that with called to be an apostle. Let me get back to this. Called to be an apostle separated unto the gospel of God. So again, called to be an apostle, a servant of Jesus Christ and called to be an apostle. So he combines that with his aspect of also being not only a servant, but also an apostle. So that apostle 
is another one of his qualifications. He states himself to be an apostle, and as such, they were not only due the, the respect, measure of respect due to that servant, but also due measure of respect as an apostle. And as Peter says here in 2 Peter 2, apostles are, were on an even keel with prophets. And he says, 2 Peter 3 and verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So that even keel, as respected as those apostles were, those prophets were under the old law, now the apostles are due that same respect. So he says, a servant of Christ called to be an apostle. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But it's easy for someone to call himself an apostle. We have people today call themselves apostles. We have one particular denomination that has 12 apostles sitting on its board of directors. It's easy to make that claim. So what are the qualifications for an apostle? Number one is they have to be a witness for Christ. They have to be a witness. Acts 1 and verse 21, the apostles get together and, and decided to replace Judas. And they were casting lots, but they, they, needed, they recognized the need to do this. And here's what Peter said Acts 1, verse 21, Therefore, of these things, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So it tells you have to be a witness. To be an apostle, you have to be a witness. Okay, nobody saw Christ. arose as he was arising from the grave. Nobody saw that. The original apostles didn't see it. But certainly one of the hurdles that Paul always had to overcome throughout all of his writings was, was he a real apostle? Because Paul came later. Paul wasn't in this group. But this group states that one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Well, they didn't see his resurrection. None of them actually saw it. The tomb was empty. They got there and the tomb was empty. But they saw a resurrected Savior. They did see that. And, and then their job was to witness that. When you put a witness on the stand, they testify for the, for the prosecution or for the defense to become a witness and to testify of what they knew to be true, what they had seen, become a witness with us of the resurrection. Continuing on there, verse 23, and they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship. Service and apostleship. Servant of Christ, called to be an apostle. They asked God in this prayer 
to show who you're going to choose. Verse 25, to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by, by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So what is it to witness to Christ, for Christ? What is that? It means to witness a resurrected Savior. It means also taking part in this ministry and in the apostleship that they were called to take part in. Paul's recounting his own conversion. On the road to Damascus, Acts 26 and verse 12, the Bible says, While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, and this is Agrippa he's talking to, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. A servant, minister, servant. Servant and witness. That was his apostleship. That was all of their apostleships, to serve as a witness of Christ and for Christ, for the defense of the gospel, for the defense of Jesus Christ. Paul himself said at 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Again, letter to the Corinthians, he's defending his apostleship. And he had to do this because he did come later. It was a different setup for Paul. But there are a number of things that we can point to in Scripture that tells us the qualifications of an apostle so we can positively identify or discount anyone claiming to be an apostle, including the apostle Paul. Paul here preaching, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He's testifying of Christ and for Christ because he is a witness of a resurrected Savior, and we'll get to that. Verse 5, And he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. He recognized that his appointment, his ordain, being ordained as an apostle, was different. He recognized that. And he still claims to be an apostle. Does he qualify? Number one, he was a witness of and for a resurrected Savior. Number two, he was personally called by Christ. We read that. Paul, I have called you to be a minister and a witness on the road to Damascus. He was called by Christ. But Paul was also confirmed by God with power. 
confirmed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 2 and verse 3, Paul writing this, that said, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles or various miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Very familiar passage of scripture, but it says that the writers of the apostles and prophets were confirmed by God. God confirmed their message with miraculous gift by confirming them as messengers. And he also did that with Paul. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12 and 12, stating a known fact. He said, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The signs of an apostle were accomplished through Paul and everyone knew it. All the brethren in the church knew it. So he's meeting all of the qualifications of an apostle. And he was one of these 12 men who was able to pass that on down to others, to share that with others. We'll go to Acts 8. I know some of you are familiar with this. It's not, uh, it's pretty common, commonly known. But Acts 8, we have the account here of Paul's persecution, Saul of Tarsus at that time, persecuting the church, and they went everywhere preaching the word here in verse 4. Verse 5 then Philip, and he was one of the, what we refer to as the deacons that was appointed in Acts 6. We, he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of Samaria. So it's a little confusing, but the country of Samaria, the capital city of it, was also named Syria. So it says he went down to the city of, of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So he did all kinds of miracles. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were, were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. He turned this city upside down. This entire city is not a small city. It's the capital of a country. And the whole city was turned upside down because of the miracle, the things that he said, but that he was also confirming that message with power, miraculous gifts and power of the Holy Spirit. On down to verse 12, it says, When they, that's a city, believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon, this is the man called Simon the sorcerer, Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Okay. This man in Acts 6 had the apostles lay their hands on him along with the others and impart unto them miraculous gifts of the Spirit. He was able to do incredible things, absolutely incredible things. Simon the sorcerer, this man who was familiar with all the tricks and the sleight of hand that bewitched the entire city, he was following him around. He was amazed seeing the miracles. He continued with Philip and was amazed seeing all these wonderful things that he had done and the entire city was feeling joy and, and these terrible afflictions were being healed. 
But he didn't try to get the gift from Philip. He didn't once try to get the gift from Philip, and he continued with him for some time. Verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The apostles could do that. Philip couldn't. Philip performed just as many miracles as any of them. But he did not pass that on. To, he did not have the ability to share that gift with others. And this confirms it. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Ghost. Simon didn't try to buy this power from Philip. This amazing power was only passed on to others by the apostles. Others were given this power, but they did not possess the ability to pass it on, to share it with others. In Acts 19, we have an instance where Paul accomplished the qualification of apostle by being able to pass that on to others. Acts 19 and verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. He was a witness of and for a resurrected Savior, just like all the other apostles. He was personally called by Jesus Christ, just like all the other apostles. He was confirmed with power, unmistakable. Nothing could be misinterpreted. Nothing could be, uh, you know, accused of being fake. And he was one of the select few that could also pass it on to others, share that gift with others. They were also not replaced. One of the unique things about the apostles is they were not replaced. This wasn't a, a sequential appointment. This wasn't something that was going to be replaced on down through time. The position of apostle ended when these men died. Apostle on earth ended when these men died. The ability to perform miraculous gifts of the Spirit also died when the men that the apostles laid their hands on, the women, when those individuals who had the hands of the apostles laid on them, when they got older and died, there was no one to share that gift on down. So those miraculous gifts also died out. They were not replaced. Acts 1 and 25 tells us why Judas was replaced. The only apostle to have ever been replaced Continuing on this, in this choice of Justice and Matthias, Peter said to take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell. So death didn't disqualify a person from being an apostle. Sin did. The only person we have, ever, have a record of ever being replaced as an apostle was Judas. And it's because he fell, not because of death. He fell because of transgression. 
they were not replaced because they never lost their appointment. They remained apostles. And there wasn't a replacement except from Judas who fell from transgression. So back to our text. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and, of course, separated unto the gospel of God. He was a huge part of humanity. He was, Paul was a huge part of the opposition, uh, of the persecution. But here he said he's separated. He was separated for the cause unto the gospel of God. Separated by that. Verse 2 which he had promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his, son, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So again, the prophets, he's making mention of the fact that the prophets foretold of this, it was accomplished through Christ. Born of the seed of David according to the flesh, Declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. God even confirmed Christ, not only in the miraculous deeds that he did, but in the ultimate act of power by raising him from the dead. And that gets us to verse 5. Paul says, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. We have received grace and apostleship. You know, if we look at this, this, this book is the book that the denominational world points to and says this book by Paul teaches salvation by faith only. All you have to do is believe. A simple, very I would say inactive, dormant, simple belief is all you have to do. And if we cherry pick and take a few verses out of context and out of this passage, we could probably justify that particular doctrine. But here he says, through him we receive grace and apostleship for the ex express purpose of obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. This is in the salutation. He hasn't got to the meat of the letter yet. There's seven verses in the salutation. He's only on verse five. And this is the very beginning of this book. What do you, let's go to the last three verses of this book and see what he says there. Romans 16 and verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began. But now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. This great letter written to supposedly teach salvation by faith only starts and ends by stressing obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. 
Everything in between has to be taken in that context. Everything in between. Paul is not teaching a different doctrine. He is not teaching anything different than what James taught when James said, faith without works is dead, being alone. If you believe, well, good for you. The devils also believe and tremble. And in this book, he defines what faith is. And it's not a simple belief, a, a mere belief. It involves belief, but what do we do after we've actually believed and how we react to that? So back to our text, verse 6. Among whom you're also the called of Jesus Christ, owned by Christ, the called belonging to Christ. He says, to all who are at Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Called of Christ, belonging to him. To all who are at Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. What a beautiful salutation. What an incredible amount of meat in these few verses. And, but people since the beginning have tried to redefine the term saint. Still are. Trying to set up qualifications and make this a, a position that's appointed or achieved in the recommendations of mankind. But God's already defined it. And it's not an award presented by man. It's a term used by God to designate all Christians, to refer to all Christians. Another thing we can notice from this salutation is there's no references of elders and deacons at Rome. And certainly... Titus, for one, was, um, was told to do that, but also in Philip's, Philippians uh, 1 and 1, he refers in that heading, in that uh, salutation, he refers to bishops and deacons. So he often does that when there were bishops and deacons there, elders and deacons there. Then back to our text. I think I skipped. No, verse 7. Okay. We're to verse 8. Okay. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for your all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That's how you taste them. We finally get to the very first. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. This had been his aim for quite some time, and it was fulfilled, but not as quickly as he thought it might be. Now he says, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. Okay, we've already talked about elders and deacons and not having those. So what does this establish means? 
It's defined as set fast and make stable and make firm. So, so Paul wants to go. And one of the things he wants to achieve when he gets there is to establish the church, to give them some gift that they can't achieve on their own so that they might be established. What was this powerful gift? What could this powerful gift have been? Powerful enough to establish them. But if he imparted, if he laid their hand, hands on them and imparted unto them miraculous gifts, at the time there were no volumes of Bibles. There were circulating letters, some inspired, some not. There were little pieces of literature here and there. There may have actually been a, a letter from one of the apostles that had made its way up there, over to Rome. But he wanted to go so that whatever this gift was that he gave them would establish that church, would give that church direction. And he told Titus, in Titus 1 and verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So to establish them, he wanted to, it's assumed that he wanted to ordain elders and deacons and then lay his hands on certain select individuals to give them guidance in the absence of any written word or very little written word. Back to our text then. It's interesting to one more before we leave that point. The popular notion today is all we have to do is pray down a revival of the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is invoke the Holy Spirit. Paul here says that the thing that he wanted to impart onto them, he could do that. He was at least one of a select few who was able to impart this gift unto them. Verse 11, for I long to see you. We'll back up and read that again. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other brethren. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So how was Paul debtor to the Jews or the Gentiles, to the Greeks or the barbarians? How was he indebted in that? Paul recognized the fact that Christ had died for him. Paul recognized the fact that Christ appeared to him, that Christ elevated him to the position of apostle, that he had forgiven his sins, that he had pronounced him an heir of eternal life. Recognition of these amazing blessings made Paul realize that he had a monumental debt of gratitude to pay. And he felt compelled to do that to all mankind. So 
So as much as is in me, verse 15, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you here in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed. If we consider half a dozen of the most powerful nations on earth with their capitals, maybe Moscow, Beijing, Washington, D.C., and a few others, and combine those into one city, the most powerful nation on earth, the most powerful city in that powerful nation, ruled by a ruler who was a madman, who was not above any heinous act, was not above wiping out a city or another country or certainly a few little individuals. I'm not ashamed, not intimidated, wasn't swayed by the power of Rome in any way because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. He had God on his side. He wasn't swayed by any of those things. But if we take these last two verses, we have the first big rabbit hole we could run down. We won't do this. I'll, I'm sure the future lessons will cover that. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, Monty, there it is. Faith only. There it is. How do we reconcile that with the, with the beginning and ending with obedience to the faith? Because Paul defines belief, faith, defines these terms as not a dormant, selfish, closed off faith. It's a generous faith, a working faith, a faith that displays our faith by our works that reveals our level of faith by the level of our, of our activities. And if we're saying something else with our activities than what we want people to think, faith without works is dead, being alone. 